Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. It's my honor today to have Dr. Brianna Goff with us. She's a professor at Kansas State University, and she does some incredible research with military families. Dr. Goff and I met, ah, God, a couple, not even a couple of years now, I'm embarrassed. It's probably been three or four years. I don't know. Anyhow, it's in the history I don't books. remember either, Ed. Let's call it pre-COVID. We'll just call it pre-COVID. It was uh, pre-COVID, yes. That's, that we can guarantee. Yes. So anyhow, I'm so happy to have her here because of her specialty in understanding military couples in particular. It's a unique couple group that has some unique challenges to them. And so your insight is so appreciated. Uh, Welcome. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I actually, uh, I'm in Kansas. I'm a professor at Kansas State. And um, interestingly enough, I'm starting my 25th year at K-State. I just looked online and figured that out. So um, I, I actually saw the news this morning about Princess Diana. And I remember just starting at K-State when um, she was killed. So, um, so yeah, so not quite 25, but starting my 25th year. So I started, uh, I actually got my master's degree and my undergrad from K-State. I'm a fourth generation K-Stater. And um, when I started my master's, I planned to work with children. And um, about five months into it, I was selected for a fellowship. And we ended up working at the VA hospital in Topeka, Kansas. And um, I joke that I couldn't even spell PTSD then, but <laughs> I um, was on, uh, had a clinical internship on the PTSD, the inpatient PTSD unit. And just completely loved the work that I did. I worked with veterans from all from World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam, lots of Vietnam veterans, um, all coming in for inpatient treatment and um, for this thing called PTSD that they were just finding out, you know, what what in the world was going on. So that that was 30 years ago that I was in the middle of my internship. I really appreciate the perspective of PTSD 30 years ago, just kind of not even being common nomenclature or language that in the field of mental health, they didn't look through the lens of PTSD to understand what was going on with folks. Like, right. Can, can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. Definitely. I actually teach a class on trauma and traumatic stress at K-State in our conflict resolution program, conflict analysis and trauma studies minor. And um, that's one of the things I do is I talk about the history. And at the time, you know, this was early 90s. Uh, PTSD came out in 1980 in the DSM-5, and it felt like, for me, PTSD was something that was out there and, and was known um, because I was exploring it. You know, I'd been there 10 years, but now looking back, I realized that was really new stuff. We knew a lot about a lot of other things much more before. I mean, PTSD has been around since the beginning of time, but um, <laughs> we, we haven't studied it as long as we have studied other things. So and you talk about the fact that it is kind of common nomenclature 
I still have students come into my class that say, oh, I thought PTSD was only for military people. And it's not. It's for people who have experienced all kinds of traumas and just difficult experiences, accidents, traumatic accidents, where maybe somebody's been seriously injured, um, people who have been through abuse and violence. So it's not just for veterans. And I think that's a really important piece um, to identify as well. But yeah, it was really new and we've come a long way. My area specifically is understanding how couples, how the couple relationship and how couples are impacted, which is a really unique area. And nobody was doing that 30 years ago. Uh, Um, So I had to sort of, in fact, I write about it in my book. I had to like find these pieces. And um, now there's a few more of us, but it's still really not understood. There's some research, but there's just a really small number that are looking at it systemically. And I'm, I'm proud to be one of those kind of pioneers in the field with that. If you're watching this video, you may not be able to see my internal experience right now for anybody that sees this, but like I am beaming with excitement and almost having tears come down because truly there, I think when I went through my grad school program to be a couples therapist uh, 10 years ago, I don't think PTSD and couples therapy was put together at all. I don't. Not that I mean, I may have been asleep at the wheel. Like, I, I mean, I kept, I promise I was alert. I didn't have my head on the desk. But, you know, this whole <laughs> you idea. You weren't sitting in the back. No, no, I actually learned, I, and who knows what I attribute this to. I actually learned probably somewhere between my MBA and my master's in counseling that I had to sit in the front row of classes in order to, to be successful. And that probably has some attention, underlying attention issues. But. Sure. You know, looking through, for anybody that's listening, what I I want you to start thinking about is you likely have trauma history in your background that you're maybe not even considering. And then that, your trauma history is showing up with your partner's trauma history and then interacting together. Can you talk about that, Dr. Goff, a little bit more? I would love to. I would love to. You're giving me tingles now because, so even though my, my work started and has focused a lot on military couples. It's not exclusive, and a lot of our research has been on other types of of trauma, but that's one of the things, um, again, early on, I have a theoretical model that we've used for a lot of our research, really just trying to emphasize the fact that these individuals, and sometimes one has trauma and the other doesn't, but oftentimes they're what we call dual trauma, so they both have trauma, and that makes for some interesting dynamics as well, but really just trying to understand both how the partner is impacted by the other partner's PTSD, as well as how their relationship is impacted. And that's one of the things that we know. So things like one of the, one of the really cool things that's come out, things like communication, awareness, just awareness of the other person's trauma. And so when we were doing these interviews that our eight couples come from, when we were doing these interviews, it was really interesting. We, we interviewed the couple, in all of our research, we've interviewed the partner separately And we wouldn't disclose what the other partner had said, but we would ask the partner, do you know if your partner has experienced any of, you know, any of these different traumas? We had a list. And, um, And it was really fascinating to see the lack of awareness. Now, some of that may have been just not wanting to disclose the partner, or some of it may have been, and that's my clinical theory, they just did not know about their trauma. And their partner had this laundry list. We talk about ACEs uh-huh. and the number of ACEs people need. I mean, it was all of them and their partner doesn't know. And so that not being aware, 
And the partner, that's one of the things I've really emphasized. The partner does not need to know all the details. Um, and that's one of the things that comes out in the book that both the partner at both the spouse at home, as well as the deployed spouse didn't share everything about what they experienced. And that's okay. That's what we call protective buffering. It's a protecting the spouse. And um, yeah, I have a cool term. I, I stole it from some other literature, from, from some medical literature, but it fits really, really well. When we first started identifying this as a theme, we talked about secrecy um, and keeping secrets with the partner. And that just didn't quite fit. But this protective buffering term really fits because there's a purpose in it. And um, it's not about here, I'm going to just spill my guts about everything I've experienced. It's about, hey, you need to know that this is part of my background. And again, for some people, just like you said, being aware of, yeah, this happened to me, but I've blocked it out. I've put it away. And so it doesn't affect me anymore. If you've been through a trauma, it does still have an impact and it still affects you, unfortunately. And that's and part of it yeah. is is coming to terms with that and doing the work necessary to heal. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, I should have known coming into this that I was probably going to have some tears coming up around this, but it's like to find someone that can talk about it so fluently and so compassionately is such a gift. Oh, thanks. That's what 30 years does. <laughs> it, it does. And it, it is a gift. And I think what I would hope people listening right now is to hear Dr. Goff, Brianna, I'm just going to call you Brianna. Is that okay? Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Totally fine. To hear Brianna's compassion and her energy this is someone who has sat with countless people with any type of trauma you can dream of. Probably you've heard it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yet there's still hope and excitement in your voice, which like that's yeah. so incredible is because I hope that translates to there's hope for working through your trauma. It's not always going to be easy. Definitely. It actually probably will get harder before it gets easier in some cases. Right. Um, yep. But this protective buffering is what a powerful phrase. And I want to tie this with, your book that you're alluding to research. So for those that are listening, academics do lots of research. They interview couples. You've interviewed couples for this book that you're publishing. That's in its first draft. It's called in uh -huh. love and war stories of couples, military deployment, right? Ish. Surviving military deployment and life battle. Yeah. Oh, say that again. Cause I'm, I'm gnarled it up. So say it again. That's okay. So it's in love and war. It's a working title. It might change, but in love and war, stories of military couples navigating deployments and life's battles. So if you're listening to this, know this book is going to be coming out by January mm -hmm. of 2023. And mm -hmm. it's, I, I know it's going to be phenomenal. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but just even in this short conversation. So Brianna is busy, busy working, trying to understand couples, has been doing it for the last 30 years. And you're going to have this great book to check out, especially if you have a military partner. And there's, mm -hmm. I mean, slight road trip. What percentage of couples out there have a military partner directly in their intimate relationship or within a generation? Ballpark. Okay. So I'm going to answer that with, so current serving military is less than 1% of the U.S. population. Okay. But then by the time you add um, veterans and then again, intergenerational, right. because one of the things we know is that not every person who served, but most people who serve, it's it's within the family. And so right. they've had a parent or grandparents that have served that tends to be now 9-11 changed that a little bit. We had a lot of folks that were, you know, jumping in ready to defend the country. Right. But for the most part, it's intergenerational as well. 
you know, I would say I should know this. I know the one percent, the one percent yeah. statistic, but you know, I'd say it's probably in the five to ten percent. But the reality is, all of us know someone who is serving, has served, male, female, old, young, multiple deployments. We all know someone. Military service has touched all of our lives. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I was expecting. Is that there's you don't have to look too far to find military history nope. in someone's family nope. or close relationships. And this book, even though it's about military couples, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I tend yeah, yeah. to interrupt a lot. I oh, should have warned okay. the podcast leader about that. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I I warn my students on the first day of class. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm old. And I, I get really excited about this. So I tend yeah. to like, oh, I want to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I forget what I was going to say. Um, but it's for it's for anyone. It's for all Americans, really. It's it's understanding the part that I think is really interesting. So um, we did interviews with 50 military couples in 2005. And then we did follow-up interviews. We tried to find them 10 years later. So we kind of did a where are they now study in, in 2015. And um, from that, this is where these eight couples, we were able to pull their interviews. And as I read them, we weren't able to find all 50 of our couples, obviously. Um, Some of them were divorced, but these eight were still together. And um, we had enough data. I had enough data from both. And as I read their interviews, I just felt like their stories needed to be somewhere besides an academic um, journal. Yeah. And that's what three years ago got me started on this book and really wanting to tell their stories to a, a, a broader audience. But this book is really for anyone who has ever loved someone because it has it has um, it has story, even though they're military based, it has stories for everyone. And um, some of the couples uh, dealt with really severe medical issues. Some of the couples dealt with really tremendous early loss in their, in their relationships. There's actually only one couple of the eight that was, that has a PTSD diagnosis. Um, and so that's another piece. We all sort of assume that every, and I even do it as a clinician. I just assume everyone who's been to war experiences PTSD. That's not the case. Everyone who's been to war has been changed in some way. Mm-hmm. Everyone who has been to war is impacted and affected by that, those experiences, but it doesn't mean that everyone has post-traumatic stress disorder, but they all have been changed. Well, and would you say that PTSD is just one outcome of wartime experience that you may end up with a variety of different mental health diagnoses? And, yep. and so PTSD If you is, seek help. If you seek if help. If you seek help, <laughs> you'll have those. Which is low, yep. right? Like the percentage yes. of military... Um, individuals yep. seeking help and support there's, is relatively low. Yep. There's lots of stigma. There's lots of um, just the culture around it. Many of our of our um, many of our veterans or our soldiers in the book sought help, but it wasn't until after they retired or got out of the army. They just refused to get out, even though the army and the military has tried really hard to make it. To, to reduce the stigma, to provide services, there's just still that that part of the culture that we don't seek help. Would well, you think that it's also somewhat self-protective to not open up to your trauma while you're in the military and in the service? Because I, I know as a recovering first responder that, I mean, there's some 
a combination of a lot of things that have delayed my addressing what I saw as a firefighter from sure. ni- 19 to 24. Sure. I'm sure. 20 years out and I'm really just getting into it now. And so I have to imagine it's similar for a lot of military folks. It's like, what do they say in treating trauma? You have to have a, enough other types of security before you can go back and work with your old trauma. Right. Well, and when you're in, especially the tempo that many of our soldiers have been in, our service members have been in, which is deploy, brief break, deploy, brief break. And, um, and so you, you literally don't have time to deal with it. You do what you have to do to get through it. Um, and so, yeah, it is often, it often does come up after, you know, a couple of our couples talked about, um, we thought everything was fine. It would be fine when he got home, everything would be fine. And then, and, and again, you don't expect to be a statistic. You don't expect to be the one who you're, and especially those who are leaders, mm-hmm. um, you're there to support your soldiers and you'll get your soldiers the help that they need, but you don't see it in yourself. Is that part of the this uh, self-sacrificing that gets kind of indoctrinated in the military culture? Yep. You're sacrificing for your brother. You're sa- sacrificing for the person beside you. And, you know, walking gently, but also kind of challenging is in that military culture, it seems like that's, I can see the the points of that, you know, certainly self-sacrificing, but from a healthy psychology development, and we think about our sense of self and our sense of others, my impression is Mm -hmm. like a generally positive balance between the two is what we would call mentally healthy. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say that like general mental health it balances sense of self with sense of others and the military sure. Sure. Kind of tips the scales very heavy to service to others? Well, and I think you brought up first responders. I think yeah. first responders, I think many of our, especially post, uh, I almost said post 9-11, post COVID, yeah. you know, many of our medical professionals, they have been pushed to their limits. And so we're seeing them leave their, their medical profession, um, in droves. We're seeing educators leave their profession in droves. Um, we're seeing the demand on mental health just skyrocket. And I think that's, you know, that's something we all went through together, just like nine 11, but there's this, again, the military does a really good job of, of training and making sure that our service members are able to do the job that they are there to do. Yeah. What is more difficult is getting them to seek help, getting them to transition out. Several of our couples talked about the transition out of the military or the transition back home and how difficult that was. In fact, one of our couples, the title of the chapter is it was the worst year of my life. And um, that was the transition out, not any of his deployments. Yeah. I mean, that deeply resonates with my experience in leaving the fire service is I really had no way to understand how much I had changed in the process of having been a firefighter for five years. And I mean, I did have the benefit of living kind of a normal civilian life on my off-duty hours. But then to go into the next work context, it was brutal. Um, And And you have to do the job that you're trained to do, right? Yeah. And so that job becomes primary focus. So you just keep piling up those experiences and setting them aside, but then, and I like to call it in my therapy, we backpack it. We put it in the backpack. Oh, yeah. okay, I'm not going to deal with it now. Yeah. I'm going to put it in the backpack. And then 
we just have this, the weight of the world um, that again, 20, 15, 20, 30 years later, finally we're dealing with. Because our body, oftentimes that's the point where as Vessel van der Kolk talks about, the body keeps the score and the body has taken over. Absolutely, right? It's the body breakdown, it's the disease processes mm-hmm. that we have, any number of them, the mental health conditions, um, yep. the collapse into depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. All yep. of those are consequences of unaddressed trauma, at least exactly. as far as I can understand at this point. You're right on. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Absolutely, right? It's the body breakdown, it's the disease processes Mm -hmm. that we have, any number of them, the mental health conditions, um, the collapse into depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation. All of those are consequences of unaddressed trauma, at least as far as I can understand at this point. Nope, you're right on. Yep. So I want to come back to this protective buffering concept and mm-hmm. think, talk specifically, how can couples work through this dynamic of protective buffering with each other? How do couples support each other in light of each other's trauma? Like this, I mean, this is the day to day with my couples in my therapy. I'm always trying to figure out, golly, how do I, this trauma is just yeah. running in its, I don't know if it's right to say this, but it's the trauma is running roughshod over the relationship. It's not the person, right? It's the person gets the blame, yeah. but it's really the trauma symptoms that are the, the problem. Yeah, is that- right. Well, and um, recently, a couple of years ago, I published a book um, that we had. So I have the couple model. And then I, we just did a book on um, the family model of trauma. And the model has, has trauma literally running through the middle of, of the system. And I think that's what happens is trauma becomes that point in the middle that everything else revolves around. And it may be the symptoms, but you know, it's, it's related to the trauma. It's, and it's, when we talk about the protective buffering, sometimes that protective buffering is, I don't talk about it because I'm protecting myself. I don't want to open that up because I don't know what's, I don't know what all's in there. And I work with people every day that that's the piece. So I'm not going to share it with my spouse. I'm not going to share it with anybody because it's much better closed off than it is because it's, it's dangerous. I mean, it really does seem like it's dangerous. So that trauma really being the central focus of their relationship, really the first part is that communication, being able to have someone and, and being aware of how do these symptoms, just some basic psychoeducation. So what you've experienced, these are your symptoms. This is how it impacts you. You withdraw you get angry, you, um, you isolate from everybody. You know, those are the really common ones, the depression, the anger, they, they take all of that out on themselves. Um, so really helping the spouse and the family understand that 
and recognize how do we do this together? And I think that's a really key part. All of our couples were still together, but it didn't mean that they all had perfect relationships. There is no perfect relationship, as you and I both know. <laughs> oh, man. Um, from our own as well as from our work. Let me just say, I am so disappointed I don't have a perfect relationship. There was a part of me when I went back to grad school to be a couples therapist that I was going to have the perfect relationship and I was going to have the perfect family. And um, right. Really disappointed. And it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. But perfectionism is also an outcome of trauma, right? Because it's Definitely. trying to protect us from the pain of things not being okay. Right, yeah. right. And if I can just be perfect, or if I can have this perfect family, or I can have this perfect career, if I can, you know, all of that, all the things that we obsess about, then I'm okay. And so, you know, then then the trauma didn't matter. Well, it does matter. And that's where that healing has to be a part of it. So the first thing I want to make sure is that the relationship doesn't have violence or any or other kinds of severe abuse and that it's relatively stable. You know, that the before you're going to unpack that trauma, even a little bit, Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that it's not going to scare off the spouse because that's their biggest fear is they're going to leave. The minute I open up, they've experienced that before. Oftentimes I told some so-and-so and they they jetted, they were done. Um, so helping them understand that we're going to do it a bit at a, a little at a time, but also the important role that that spouse plays. Um, because for a lot of the couples, it's the spouse that really helps them heal. And so helping them recognize that they're a conduit, what they've dealt with. And, and again, acknowledging the impact it's had on them. It's what we call secondary trauma. Mm-hmm the secondary trauma that the spouse experiences or their own personal trauma often, you know, the, the trauma triggers can, can generate that. Um, but helping them understand their own secondary trauma, but also how do we do this together? How do we do this as a team? And that's a really big part of the, the chapters for several of our couples, um, regardless of the deployments, regardless of the life's battles they experienced, they were a team. So that's really a fundamental task, if you will, is to help the couple orient towards this as a team. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, in military world especially, it's it's a group over the individual, right? Right. And right. so that message of like it's the group over either one of you individually, like we rise right. and fall together. Well, and so typically, what you find when you have a couple is it's me against you, right? Absolutely. So it's this, I'm trying to get. You're trying to get your needs met. I'm trying to get my needs met. And so we're fighting with each other. Right. We can get them together and fighting against the PTSD or fighting against the symptoms or, again, identify that piece that they can work together on instead of seeing it as the other person's fault or the other person's to blame. You know, it's so powerful because right on that extreme end in the military, it is very much an us versus them mentality. Right. And so right. it's natural that that, I mean, and I'm not blaming the military on that. Like, that's no. part of the human condition to some but extent. But the military comes first. And and that's one of the things that the spouses and the soldiers talked about was, I had a job and I had to do my job. You know, that was, that came first. And yeah, that oftentimes family felt like, spouses and families felt like they were at the bottom of the list. And sometimes they were because they had to be. And that's unfortunate. Well, that's, I guess that's also part of the process of being in the military is you give up a lot of your own agency, a lot of your own self-direction. Yes. That actually, that's really well said because, um, the, the veterans that I'm working with now, many of the veterans I'm working with now, 
it's finding themselves again. It's finding their agency. And, um, and that's, it's such a foreign concept, um, because Mm. they, they're floundering, you know, they're on this deserted Island and they can't figure out how to get off. And so that's a lot of what clinically, what I work on is helping them figure out how to, how to get off that Island that they've been on. It's almost like you almost have to reestablish an individual sense of identity separate from the group. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yep. Yep. The other piece that's really hot, really difficult in that transition out is, um, you know, for some of these folks, they came from difficult backgrounds. Mm -hmm. They are at the height of, you know, the best years of their life at their physical best. Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes for many people, they were leaders, you know, they were very successful in their military careers And then, so to go from this almost like gods Mm -hmm. to then just being a regular person is not, not even just, I mean, I don't think there are even words. I'll have to come up with a word, a a description for that, but the air in their hot air balloon has just completely deflated. It's gone. And yeah, it is finding out who I am because this is who I was for 10 or 15 or 20 years. If they served their full this is who I was day in and day out. This is what I ate. This is what I drank. This is how, what I slept. This is what I dreamt. That's right. it. That was their focus. And so it's hard. And so then it's hard to focus on them. I, I have a person I'm working with now that we work on being present and that's a really hard concept. When I, I think, you know, as I understand the brain anatomy, right, that we talk about working from the top down and the bottom up and the top down is like mm-hmm. introducing the ideas that just may mm-hmm. even feel foreign and hoping that they'll work down more into the emotional part of the brain, the limbic region, the midsection of the brain, yep. and then yep. ultimately down into the nervous system and the instinct level. But yep. as you go through military training, you, your whole brain structure is conditioned. It's not just the thought patterns, it's the emotional processes and the instinctual patterns get rewired. So that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so their brains are different. The brain yeah. is conditioned through all the, those yeah. experiences and yeah. the reactivity. Yep. And it's all about I've got to make this decision, not feel it. I've got to. Yeah. I've got to think it. And so yeah, the, that circuitry is completely changed. So I, I'm sure you've run across this, but. Military, families, and money. Uh huh. What's the deal there? What's going on for military families and money in particular? What do you see? What do you experience? What makes it tricky for oh. them to navigate? Um. Well, certainly with the deployments, that makes a challenge. Um, one of the things, even years ago, um, I, you know, I think the popular, um, you know, civilian view is, oh, the the military pays for everything. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And um, in many situations, you know, there's this idea of, well, you have your housing paid for, you have your insurance paid for, you have, you know, you have all of this paid for plus, you know, plus um, salary, plus you get deployment pay. Well, that again, if you're if you're talking about an 18, 19, 20 year old, that's a lot of money that you may not have the skills to know how to, what to do with that. And so I work with folks a lot and 
And our couples talked about how they managed the finances. And sometimes it was the spouse at home. Other times it was the spouse who was um, deployed. And, you know, that would have been early days of some online. I mean, now, you know, it's it's <laughs> automatic for us to do online banking, right? But that right. would have been some early days of online banking and bill payment and that type of thing. Yeah. But, um, and so it often was left. And a couple of our spouses have some funny, funny stories. You know, I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time, but like, right. you know, they wouldn't get the mail for two weeks at a time. And, you know, a bill would be late or, the, you know, and I'm guilty of this, you know, I bring the mail in and I set it down and then I don't get back to it. But, um, you know, being able to those responsibilities on top of one spouse being in a life or death situation and the other spouse literally handling everything at home. Right. And often that involved kids that involved working that might involve school. Um, their own school. And um, that was a lot. That was a lot for them to manage. And so, um, you know, that's a piece that oftentimes I think couples don't talk about before they get married. Right. Um, they don't say, what are we, you know, what are we going to do? And I think, and I think maybe I emailed this, but, you know, there isn't a one size fits all, but they might think, oh, well, my parents did it this way. So that's how we have to do it. It isn't, but you have to figure out what's going to work for you. And, and especially in a military situation, there are, the other piece is there are, there are programs for everything. And so if you don't know how to manage a checkbook, go take a class, go, go get with, um, army community services, or I'm most familiar with the army. So that's, that's the one I'm used to, but, um, you know, go, go get support services. They're there, they're on post, everything's online, contact military one source, but there are people that can help you. They help them with taxes. They help them with managing money. Um, that's what they're there for. And so reach out, reach out. That's, that's an important piece. And oftentimes we don't, we feel like, well, I'm, I'll be embarrassed or, you know, I should know this. So there's so much shame that can come up around money. It's just unbelievable. And it's that feeling that as adults, as adults, air quotes, whatever that means, that we're supposed to know how money works kind of intuitively and we don't know how money works intuitively but yeah. you, know, you said something really fast but so important and I, I come up against this with couples all the time as well is you almost have to give them permission to do it differently than what they saw in their family like Great point. like there's this implicit or implied like this is how it's done and that's what we learn about life is our families teach us all kinds of stuff formally and informally but as, right. as maturing, often as, most informally, yeah, most time informally, right? And, <laughs> and some of the toxic messages I've heard about money and trust and gender and responsibility is, is gnarly to say it kindly. Yep. Yep. And so, as couples are maturing and working through their finances together, they've got to really decide how do we want to do it best. And this may yep. step on some people's toes, but you may even have to challenge your particular religious or cultural values around what's done right and mm -hmm. figure out for the two of you, how are you uniquely equipped to work through the finances? Um, I think kind of that, yep. that classic example is some people are just better administratively than others. Right. Right. And right. typically the person yeah. that's better administratively might need to stay on top of the bills. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't matter if they're male or female or, you know, older or younger. Or, Gen yeah. yeah. Gender does not matter. Yep. When, women and men are equally capable of managing money. Yep. It just is. So.
but find but finding that person with those characteristics is what you're saying and i think that's very very true yeah yeah the other thing i want to say is that money is often connected with trauma and we Thank don't you. often make that we don't don't often make that connection and so um, yeah, together. yeah yeah it's all it's all and so yeah money often helps us feel better and so i'm going to spend money because that's the only thing that helps me feel better uh, I'm going to get online. And so, you know, I've gotten myself into debt and I get lots of folks that that debt piece just keeps piling up, but those patterns have not changed. And so that's where being able to address the trauma piece and recognize that's a piece that, you know, I saw my mom do because my dad was abusive. And so that's what I, and again, not to blame mom or dad, right. but to be able to identify those patterns. Well, I think, you know, in some ways, just kind of pulling off of that train, in some ways, shopping can be the safest place to go, right? Like if if husband or wife at home is becoming violent or dangerous or unavailable, going shopping is a very, quote unquote, safe thing to do. Now, the backside of yeah. it is you're less money. And once your partner finds out about that, it can lead to more conflict. Right. So there goes the cycle. But right. when we think about a physical safety place and then when we look at the yeah. general marketplace where are the happiest people yeah they're in the ad covers they're in the, the right. tra travel right. book brochures they're in the store mannequins you know like that's where the ha yep. quote unquote happy people are yep and so it's very natural that we're drawn to that yeah not recognizing all the pieces yeah. and you know i really appreciate very few even couples therapists that i talk with will automatically make the trauma money link no but it's yeah. it's so endemic and it follows so closely eating disordered patterns and so all of those gambling yeah eating disorders all of the all of the um isms <laughs> all the isms yes. Alcoholism, yeah <laughs> well and that's you know right i you know i think as a reformed financial planner you know the idea was well just teach them how to budget or get them investing right. Or get them to know their, you know, in the military, get them to understand their financial benefits so you can feel financially secure. Yeah. But the reality is, right, we even have this whole class of financial trauma. Right. Oftentimes right. in our background where money right. was a source of threat or danger or exactly. fear or shame. Exactly. And so you mm -hmm. got to address that. Or a reward, well. reward in certain situations. Yeah. And so that's where we learn to how we feel about ourselves is tied to money. Yes. In or food or sex or all of those all of them and then they we yeah. use money to get food and sex and yeah it gets to be a big melting pot doesn't it boy we're getting into some deep stuff here <laughs> <laughs> well that's the goal right because we yeah. want to help people recognize that this these are complex topics they're not yep. easily fixed or remedied problems and when we start to see how they're interrelated it can feel overwhelming and I think validating. Yeah. And I think, like you said earlier, first is the validation. First is the, oh, I get this. But then we have to do that limbic work. We have to make sure that we are recognizing, yeah, it's not just enough to know it. Right. Then we have to create the behavior change and the emotional change and recognize there are other ways that we can, can feel good about ourselves. So do you have... Any kind of favorite ways you like to teach people about how the brain works and how the brain is structured? 
Yes. So um, I used to avoid that topic at all costs, <laughs> even though I was a life science major. Um, I, I was pre-med for a while and I finished my life science degree. And so I took all the biology classes and I loved it. I loved human anatomy. Um, but actually, when I did the EMDR training, the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing training yeah. um, four years ago, that really helped me understand the brain a lot better. And I've just really been soaking up more and more about, again, how our brain, how the limbic system and our um, polyvagal, there, uh -huh. there's a term out there called polyvagal theory, right. that our vagus nerve is all tied to everything. And so being able to regulate, being able to get some of that self-regulation, um, being able to find that relief, because typically we're, you know, we're so either in fight mode, flee mode, I'm going to run away from everything, right. or we're just completely, completely shut down. Yeah. And so again, that's part of the being present recognizing it, but being present, but yeah, the, the, I could go off on, on that for a, a week. Um, but the, the EMDR and just the way the brain, how we can engage the brain for healing, yeah. um, we don't fully understand why or how EMDR works. And, um, I, I tell my clients that and when I told my husband that he was like, you can't tell people that. And I'm like, well, it's the truth. We really don't fully understand why it works. Um, yeah. but it works. And I, you know, I was a, a very anti EMDR um, and, uh, started my clinical practice and, uh, decided, you know, if this works, maybe I'll use it once in a while. And I just think it's the closest thing to a, a cure for PTSD that I've seen. And I know there's lots of things out there and I was not a believer when I started. Well, and I, I think that that's a really valid point to bring forward is for anybody that's listening today. I think as a therapist, I've come to appreciate that. And, and I've been this way is I mistrust therapy before I trust it. Sure. Right? Like just writ sure. large. I mean, let's be honest here. I came out of grad school to be a therapist and I was not at all convinced that therapy worked or was helpful. I mean, it took oh, me yeah. probably four or five years before I was like actually seeing results for myself in my own life uh -huh. and with, with clients. Uh -huh. And what is a re mental health result? I mean, yeah, I, I pick up my wife a little bit. Uh, with love she's a dentist if she goes to do a she goes to do a filling right she's it's very clear that the filling is done uh -huh. and it's resolved and it's stable but like i help you with your anxiety there's, and then you come back and your anxiety is actually worse like oh no what's going on right there's so much ambiguity the, in the work that we do and so for anybody that's listening and saying look i've had my shot at therapy it didn't work for me like it's like a preacher, but you got to keep trying and you're going to keep finding the right yeah. person. And even the models yep. of therapy continue to evolve and the understanding of trauma and how do we resolve trauma. And EMDR certainly is, is that, you know, I was highly skeptical of EMDR for a long time. And um, earlier you were talking about like people don't want to open up that, that trauma because it just can be too much to manage. And so, What's beautiful yeah. about EMDR and do you use EMDR in conjunction with couples even sometimes? I have. I actually don't do as much couples therapy. I mainly do individual, um, which is interesting because I'm a couples therapist, but um, I, I enjoy working with couples, but um, especially with the EMDR, it tends to be more individual Yeah. and just getting their healing 
that individual healing, but definitely am open to bringing a partner in and have and have done that because yeah. I think it's necessary to educate the partner as well. Awesome. Well, as we start to bring this conversation to a close, what's something that you would want to leave listeners with that's so important to understand about trauma and their relationship that hasn't already been covered? As you were talking a minute ago, I was thinking, keep trying. Get help from somewhere. It doesn't have to be a mental health person. If you've had a bad situation, find a good mental health person. They're out there. Um, it may not be that they were bad. It may just have been that it was a bad fit mm -hmm. or you weren't ready or lots of reasons. But reach out to somebody. Reach out to a mentor. Get the help. You know, get the support that you need. And um, don't 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 keep it in. And um, you know, EMDR. It was interesting. You said you know you didn't really feel like you weren't really 100% sure about the whole counseling thing. I actually didn't feel like I was a good therapist until I started doing EMDR. <laughs> I didn't, it gave me the confidence, even though I'd been working with trauma for 20 plus years, yeah. it gave me the confidence that I, I lacked. And I think it gave me the tools to actually see change happening. I mean, I've always been you know, very optimistic, very, um, I, I laugh because a couple of my students have put in my teaching evals, um, you know, Dr. Goff talks about really depressing negative things, but she, you know, she's always so positive and, and upbeat, which makes me laugh. Um, but I think that's part of it is humor and, um, but find, find the people, find the tribe, find the people who care about you and, and bring them around in your journey, because that's, that's the most important, not, not who or what technique they use, but are they the kind of person that's going to be you know, back in you, that they're going to, they're going to have your back and they're there for you. I think that's so beautiful to end on is that our mental health journey is not just in the hands of an individual therapist. It's in our own hands first, uh, like you're empowered definitely. and you do need to take agency, that word control over your yep. mental health. No therapist is fully going to take that on. No one cares about your mental health more than you. Right. right. And you know, most of our mental health disorders have a relational component and we heal in relationships. And right, so exactly. it may take some work to figure out who are healthy people to surround yourself with. And if yep. you have especially childhood trauma in your background, it may take some time to learn how to really sort the wheat from the chaff. But yep. You, yep. finding those healthy relationships, finding mentor married couples, wow, that's yep. huge. So yep. it might mean um, cleaning the house. And I don't mean literally. It might mean getting rid of some of those toxic relationships. And Sometimes yeah. that may be a spouse and, and finding those people that are, are healthy. Yeah. That's, that's the difficult work for sure. Yeah. But definitely is. worth it. You have one life to live and why not make the most of it? Definitely. Definitely. And I think that's key with this book as well is, is they're living their lives and they're doing it on their terms. That's so empowering. So tell us the title of the book again. Where is it going to be found once it's really available, once it's fully available? So that's the cool part about it. So the, the book is In Love and War. Again, might change that part of the title. Um, but Stories of Couples Navigating Military Deployments and Life's Battles. Um, the author won't change. So um, you can always <laughs> Google me. Um, but it will actually be out on Amazon. Um, I don't know how all that works yet, but um, it'll it'll be out on Amazon and all of the um, all of the book places, um, which is which is the cool part about it is that it'll be publicly available and um, in January. 
So people can just Google you, Dr. Brianna Goff, Kansas State. Uh -huh. Is that the best yep. way for them to track you and your work? Yep. Okay. All right. And there'll be show notes. So if you don't didn't write it down or you're driving the car, just take a look and we'll have notes for you to, to catch up. So. Awesome. And I think you'll have the link to the pre-sale as well that you're going to put out. So Definitely. Awesome. Definitely. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a great morning and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Ed. Yeah. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money at... Ed.